Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an OSC podcast, we will explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, businesses, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. The new normal will not be the old normal. We know that, right? We've seen too many of the benefits um, to transparency, to efficiency, and to accessibility. Hello, and welcome to Talk Justice, an LSC podcast. I'm your host, Ron Flagg, president of the Legal Services Corporation. In today's episode, we discuss how the COVID-19 pandemic is affecting our justice system and the practice of law, and whether these effects could be permanent and transformational. Our guests are Texas Supreme Court Chief Justice Nathan Heck, Michigan Supreme Court Chief Justice Bridget McCormick, and American Bar Association President Patricia Lee Rifo. Chief Justice Heck has been elected to the Texas Supreme Court six times, first in 1988 as a justice and most recently in 2014 as Chief Justice. He is the longest serving member of the court in Texas history. Chief Justice Heck was appointed by the Chief Justice of the United States to the Federal Advisory Committee on Civil Rules and is president of the National Conference of Chief Justices. Chief Justice McCormick was elected to the Michigan Supreme Court in 2012 and became Chief Justice in January 2019. Before joining the court, she was a law professor and dean for clinical affairs at the University of Michigan Law School. She was co-director and co-founder of the Michigan Innocence Clinic and taught in the Michigan Clinical Program, uh, a domestic violence clinic, clinic and a pediatric advocacy clinic. Patricia Lee Rifo was elected as the ABA's 144th president this past August after serving in a wide variety of leadership positions in the ABA. Partner in the law firm of Snell and Wilmer in Phoenix, she has chaired the ABA's House of Delegates from 2014 to 2016 and also chaired the ABA's largest practice group, the Section of Litigation the ABA Standing Committee on Membership, the American Jury Project, and near and dear to my heart and LSC, ABA Day in Washington. Thank you all for joining us today and uh, welcome back to all of you. You have been not only <coughs> Chief Justices and President of the ABA, but uh, longtime uh, leaders for the cause of access to justice, not just in Texas, in Michigan, but across the country. And uh, you've also been frequent uh, guests at LSC programs for which we're grateful. Uh, Trisha's first uh, public uh, uh, comments and uh, public uh, remarks were at an, AB, uh, an LSC justice forum back in August. So we were grateful uh, that Trish, you made your, your debut at that time. Um, let me start out uh, with uh, questions for uh, Chief Justice Heck and uh, Chief Justice McCormick. Uh, how have the pandemic and the economic fallout from the pandemic affected the state courts in Texas and Michigan? What kind of challenges have you and your colleagues around the state seen? And uh, what operational changes have been made to address those challenges? Chief Justice Heck? Well, thanks, Ron, and thanks for uh, having us uh, today. <clears throat> We're happy to uh, uh, to talk about this that we've been living through um, the last several months. Um, 
pandemic just fell on the state court system like a hammer. Uh, literally, uh, one day we were operating as we have for years and decades. And a day or so later, um, we were either completely shut down or profoundly changing the way we go about our business. Um, it took a little while for us to be to get our bearings, I think. Um, but we quickly went to remote conferencing. Um, I, I think uh, lawyers and judges uh, are not the most tech-savvy people in the world. <laughs> Uh, the quickest to embrace change uh, of any kind, let alone that kind. Um, but uh, uh, judges just had to, uh, within uh, a day or two, uh, learn new techniques of convening people, <clears throat> of holding hearings uh, all, uh, remotely online, um, and trying to uh, work through their business in ways that kept uh, the lawyers, the parties, the staff, the public uh, safe. <clears throat> um, we're still kind of working through that. Uh, the changes are, are uh, evolving. Uh, a lot of things shut out uh, pretty much across the board at first. Uh, now we're seeing um, some increases in evictions here and there. Uh, not so much um, a lot of the time, Not certainly not the kinds that are um, that are sort of brewing out there uh, because of the C CDC moratorium and um, uh, some uh, other actions that have been taken in various different states. We've got an eviction diversion program that the governor uh, and the court worked on to um, um, use CARES money uh, to uh, help with uh, rent assistance. We just actually, we just it from Michigan uh, and uh, give Chief Justice McCormick the credit for that. We, we, uh, uh, we got our governor to see the, the virtue of it too. Uh, and so we're rolling that out. Um, but we know that uh, there are a lot of these cases that are uh, just uh, ready to be filed, ready to proceed. There are going to be a lot of debt collection cases, obviously. We're concerned about that. We're concerned about the volume of those cases on the courts um, and the effects of them uh, on the on the public. So uh, there have been a lot of changes. <clears throat> I think um, I think I can say for Texas um, that judges, uh, trial and appellate judges across our state, are functioning pretty well. They're they're getting their daily business done uh, in ways that. Um, uh, are, are, are becoming acceptable to, uh, to the users of our, uh, of our courts. Um, but we're looking down the road, what's going to happen, how's all this going to change. And, uh, I think it, I think the changes will be pretty profound. Uh, Chief Justice McCormick, what do you see in Michigan? Very similar to what Chief Justice Hecht sees in Texas. Uh, you know, it, it is impossible to understate how uh, profound the change that we have seen in the last last six months has six months has been. We've seen more change since March uh, than we've seen in three decades in, in, in state courts. Um, and, and let me just set the stage for why that was required. Um, 
you know, the state courts in Michigan adjudicate, the trial courts adjudicate between three and four million cases a year. Um, that means those are really busy places, really busy places that people don't have a choice about whether to go to. You know, we can all make individual, individual choices about whether to go to a certain restaurant if we don't think it's safe for us or our family. But when a judge tells you you have to go to court, you have to go to court. So the, 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 the changes that were required of the, the state courts were profound. They just were. Um, and we just never had any kind of impetus like that in my lifetime as a practicing lawyer. Um, or a judge, um, you know, as, as Chief Justice Hecht said, we've been really good judges and lawyers, the entire profession really at resisting a lot of change. And there are lots of good reasons for that. Some of them are legal, right? We're a, we're a profession based on what happened before. You know, that's, what, that's, that's sort of how we're trained. Um, some of them are cultural, some of them are normative, but they all add up to make us the most successful, maybe, you know, education is like tied uh, profession to have resisted um, the tech revolution that has come for every other industry, right? It's come for everybody else. Um, and now it's come for us. And um, I have said in many, in many different uh, uh, forums that it's all eventually, I think, um, gonna, for the best. Um, it's allowed us to both learn quickly how to do things differently in ways that will increase transparency, accessibility, and efficiency and also learn about ourselves that we're able to do things differently, which is that in and of itself has been an important lesson for us. Um, so like Texas, we moved quickly to uh, remote platforms. We had a bit of a head start, I think, because we had already gotten Zoom licenses for all of our judges in Michigan. So we were ready to go um, uh, right away. Of course, we had to, even though they had them, they weren't using them. So we had to do some training and some bench cards and some um, support, but, um, uh, judges in Michigan a couple of weeks ago surpassed 1.1 million hours of Zoom hearings. We have many judges who are absolutely current in their dockets. Um, wow. And we're seeing much greater response rates from self-represented litigants who find it a lot easier to appear on a smartphone um, or a laptop um, than they do finding childcare, getting a day off from work and finding their way to a courthouse where it might be expensive to park or you can't park or there's no transportation. There's a lot of complications for getting to court. So we're seeing all kinds of benefits. Obviously there are still um, lots of difficulties as well. And I don't think we yet know the full economic fallout. Um, we made it through this last budget year um, by the skin of our teeth and it looks like we're gonna make it through 2021 by the skin of our teeth. But I think we're going to see economic consequences of this going into the next um, five years. I'll be interested if 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 my co-panelists agree with me about that. I don't. I, don't, I think we're going to we we're going to see the economic consequences for a while, and they're going to show up both in our budgets, the court budgets, and in our dockets. And it's going to be um, that we 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 have challenges yet to uh, yet to yet to overcome. But I I still am absolutely optimistic about all of it. Well, to your point, uh, our Legal Services Corporation board uh, on the uh, projection that uh, the world is going to change and economic consequences are going to be long-term uh, approved a resolution for to ask Congress for uh, over a billion dollars for fiscal year 2022, which would be a uh, more than 100% increase in our budget. Obviously, uh, our asking doesn't make it so, but this was an unpre unprecedented ask. It was based on 
uh, the premise that you stated that uh, these economic consequences, particularly as they affect people living in poverty, are going to be profound and long lasting. Trish, uh, Chief Justice <coughs> McCormick talked about uh, the challenges uh, that lawyers face and, and uh, how it is that lawyers are sometimes uh, resistant to change. Can you talk about uh, what you see as the challenges uh, facing the profession and you know, how lawyers around the country have been responding to those challenges? Well, I think by and large, the profession's done a pretty good job um, of transitioning into the new world in which we all find ourselves. Um, lawyers are by nature, I think, mostly resilient people, um, and they're also problem solvers, right? And so I feel as though in a lot of places, lawyers have sort of come together and said, okay, well, this wasn't quite what we expected. Um, how are we gonna solve this problem? Um, uh, and lawyers, I think, have partnered with courts across the country in trying to figure out how to move proceedings virtual, how to move our practices virtual, how to um, accommodate some of the things that we didn't think we were gonna be able ever to accommodate virtually, and we're doing it, and we're doing it well. Um, and that doesn't mean it is always easy every day, but um, lawyers by and large have sort of said, well, this is just what we have to do. So let's go do it. Um, the, the resiliency uh, factor I think is really important. And, and of course, um, the, the chief justices are both right. When they say the lawyers are resistant to change, this is not a um, change friendly profession, at least at its very top levels. Um, I can certainly speak for some of my more senior partners in saying that, um, you know, they, like I, have had to learn a whole bunch of new stuff uh, in order to work in this environment. But we're finding that we can do things more efficiently. We can um, do them at less cost to our clients uh, in a virtual world. And we are trying to find the positives in the midst of what is otherwise, um, you know, a challenging and unpleasant set of circumstances. Obviously, lawyers are on their own. Uh, the, some of them are in big firms. Uh, some of them are in medium-sized firms. Some work for the government. Uh, um, but uh, many of them are members of the ABA. How has the uh, ABA responded to COVID-19? What sort of support uh, is the ABA uh, providing to the profession? Uh, and also, uh, how is the ABA addressing some of the um, public policy issues that have, have come up uh, out of the, the pandemics, particularly, for example, uh, evictions? Well, we have sort of, um, I would say, two buckets into which um, I would put our response. One bucket is around addressing the unmet legal needs arising out of the pandemic. And we very quickly put together a task force that is chaired by Jim Sandman, the president emeritus of the Legal Services Corporation, um, with participation from lots of organizations around the country, uh, including the, the Conference of Chief Justices and, and plenty of others, to try to mobilize both the legal services and the pro bono response to the horrific legal need 
that um, our communities, particularly our underserved communities, uh, are facing as a consequence of this. Um, we are about to launch a significant national effort around um, generating pro bono representation to address the eviction uh, crisis that is partly here in some places and certainly coming in other places. We have, as a matter of policy, been advocating for not just moratoria on evictions, but rent relief that addresses both what helps the tenant and what helps the landlord. Because landlords, after all, have mortgages to pay and expenses, and to simply stop um, evictions is only a, at best, partial solution to this problem. So in the eviction space and the other legal needs space, the ABA is working really hard through its task force to try and address them. Separately from that, we have a different group that we call Practice Forward, which is focused on what are the changes in the practice of law that are going to be permanent here? And how do we as a profession um, incorporate those changes and what other things do we need to be thinking about in what's going to be, at least for a while, uh, a virtual environment. And that runs everything from how do you do a jury trial um, in, in, a, in a virtual environment, which is, of course, something that both of our chief justices here have been struggling with. Um, but it's also around things like how do you mentor young lawyers in an environment in which nobody's in an office to sit together and learn. Um, I, for example, learned a bunch about how to be a lawyer by sitting as a young lawyer in the office of a senior partner and watching him or her do their thing. Well, we can't do that right now. Um, we have to be mindful about how we're mentoring and taking care of our young lawyers. We have to be mindful about taking care of one another uh, from a wellness standpoint, from a mental health and substance abuse standpoint, because all of those things are um, made more challenging in a world in which many of us, I mean, I'm still incarcerated in my dining room and I have been for six months, seven months, um, and I'm hardly alone. So um, all of those challenges uh, are important and are things the American Bar Association is working on. Uh, Chief Justice Hack, uh, we've already uh, talked a bit about uh, the eviction crisis that already exists and you know, could potentially get much worse uh, after the uh, expiration of uh, particularly the Center for Disease Control moratorium. Uh, your court has issued an administrative order following up on the CDC moratorium on evictions that you know, I think is, is really quite impressive. Can you tell us about it? Uh, you know, why did you do it? How did it develop? Yeah, um, from the beginning, Ron, we, uh, we have tried to collaborate uh, with um, all the uh, stakeholders in these various different areas. So um, uh, three or four days after we, uh, after a disaster was declared in Texas, um, I asked the legal aid lawyers, the Texas Apartment Association folks, um, the creditors bar representatives to come and sit down and um, kind of uh, go through 
what they saw were the problems and what what were acceptable solutions. And right off the bat, pretty much everybody said, let's just stop, get our bearings, draw breath, see what's going to be next. Then as time has passed, uh, we've got to get back, uh, you know, we've got to begin to learn to how how we're going to live in the circumstances that we've got. So um, the, uh, I also ask uh, the uh, judges who try those cases, eviction cases in Texas, they're justices of the peace here. We have 802 of them. Uh, I asked representatives from them to meet with the uh, stakeholders as well and sort of identify um, issues as they arose and best practices to meet them. Um, and the principal uh, driving force for the Supreme Court's order was the commentary throughout all of the stakeholders that uh, people don't know anything about um, relief programs, CDC, CARES Act. Uh, I mean, they kind of heard about it, but they don't know exactly how it affects them or whether it does. And this is true of a lot of landlords as well as uh, as well as tenants. So, um, the focus of our orders has been to require the trial judges uh, to set in place procedures for letting everybody know. Okay, there's a CDC moratorium out here. It you, if you find, you've got to submit a declaration. It has to say these things. Uh, and so tenants who don't know anything about that um, are when they are served with a citation in an eviction case, the uh, citation is accompanied by information. Uh, and then through the Landlords Association and others, uh, we try to get the information out to them uh, as well. Same thing with our diversion program. Um, it's been to uh, try to set up uh, fair, routine procedures, uh, but mostly uh, get the information out uh, to people so um, they won't get, uh, uh, won't get caught. And you know, there are little nuances to this that uh, I, I at least wouldn't expect along the way. For example, one of the concerns of the landlords with the CDC moratorium um, was that it imposes very severe criminal penalties uh, on uh, anybody who violates it. And they were afraid that they would have uh, uh, people, landlords, who just didn't know about it. Uh, and they didn't believe you know, what a tenant told them or something. They just went ahead and uh, did it. They didn't go get a lawyer's advice or anything. And lo and behold, they're in trouble. Um, so it's, it's a way to try to make sure that everybody knows all of these new processes uh, and how they work together uh, and that the judges are really working on together best practices for themselves about how to handle the cases. We've been talking a lot already. I mean, uh, the pandemic is all, all about change. Uh, uh, you know, none of us, most of us had not heard of Zoom uh, until March or April, and now uh, many of us are on Zoom all the time. Chief Justice McCormick, uh, what do you see as the opportunities to use the innovations that have 
uh, in the last six months become uh, common to improve access to justice after the pandemic has passed? Where would you like to see lasting changes? Well, I don't, I, I, I'm sure I don't personally have all the answers to that, but what I, what I, what I do feel confident about is it, it is giving us the opportunity to basically rebuild what we do from the ground up and we get to do it um, with access, and, access to justice in mind, right? I mean, how many decades are, you know, as a lawyer, were we um, uh, working really hard to figure out how to solve our civil justice problem and uh, at the end of each year, feeling like we still had the same size um, access to justice problem, right? Um, it, it's, it, 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 it's not as if we were on the path to, to solve the civil justice problem before we had a pandemic. So the fact that we get to now um, rethink what we do and how we do it um, really just opens up the possibilities for how we can think about the civil justice um, uh, crisis, which is a crisis. I mean, eight out, of, eight out of 10 people in Michigan with civil legal needs can't afford lawyers and either navigate courts on their own or just don't bother going to court. Um, just don't bother, bother going to court is, is, is more common than going to court and figuring it out, but there are an awful lot of people that have to go to court and try to figure it out. And now all of a sudden we have um, basically a, a blank slate and we really can think about what we want to put in place um, as we move back to whatever the new normal will be. The new normal will not be the old normal. We know that, right? We've seen too many of the benefits um, to transparency, to efficiency, and to accessibility. Um, but that just means, um, uh, that just gives us an opportunity to, to figure out what we're going to take with us, uh, what we're glad we don't have to take with us, and what we can try next. Um, we quickly upscaled online dispute resolution, um, uh, a platform in Michigan that is free um, and allows people to use it with or without a mediator, their choice. Um, and they can resolve uh, small dollar civil disputes online in an asynchronous um, uh, format so they can do it whenever it fits into their lifestyle, evenings, weekends, whatever works. And if they're happy with the result, the platform translates that result to a court form, files it in the court, they never have to go to court at all, they never have to spend a dollar. That's a big breakthrough for a lot of people with civil needs in Michigan. Um, one thing I'm working on now is making sure everybody understands that it's available, right? I mean, we have to, we, we, both, ha we both have to build um, new opportunities, and then we have to teach the public what they are. Um, we have a judge here, and I live in Ann Arbor, in, in Washtenaw County, Michigan, who now that we do so much on remote platforms, um, is partnering with a local police officer who knows the community of folks who may have warrants on uh, small misdemeanor cases, sometimes owing money or um, owing uh, information to probation, um, and we know who those folks are and where they are. And so this local police officer goes to this one park where a lot of people hang out every day and the local homeless shelter where uh, a lot of other people are and every day asks who wants to clear a warrant. And anybody who does, she, the judge makes sure they're breathalyzed first because she wants to make sure they're sober when they clear their warrants, which is fair so that the, you know she knows for sure they heard what the follow-up instructions are. But then on this officer's phone, they zoom into the magistrate and clear the warrants. They were bringing the court to the people. And just because of all this happened, I mean, we really have to think about this as an exciting opportunity 
to really bring justice to people where they are and um, make the kind of progress we've never been able to make in our access to justice crisis. I'm sorry if I sound excited, I'm a little bit excited. No, that's great. And, and you know, you're really applying a lesson that a lot of legal aid programs have, have learned over the years. If you just sit in your legal aid office and put your, you know, lawyer is in the office sign out, uh, you're not going to get many, uh, you're not going to get many clients. A lot of people don't uh, understand uh, that they may have a legal problem. They, they may understand that they, somebody says that, uh, they have debts and they owe money and they, they don't have the money, they view it as a financial problem, they don't see a, a, a legal aspect to it. Or if they have a sense that there's a legal aspect to it, they figure I, I can't afford a lawyer. Um, so what legal aid programs have found is if they really wanna serve clients, they have to go to where those clients are. So you have medical legal partnerships where, for example, veterans who are getting uh, Healthcare at a veterans hospital um, can also, uh, as as the civil legal needs that they face uh, come out during the course of their healthcare visits, uh, there's a lawyer embedded in the the uh, um, team, the uh, healthcare service team available. So you're applying a very similar sort of lesson. Chief Justice Hack, what what sort of innovations, uh, you know, five years from now in Texas? Uh, uh, what, what do you foresee, uh, um, you know, in in place in Texas that will be a lesson learned from uh, from uh, the current time period? Well, picking up on what you and Justice McCormick just said, um, it's uh, we're not going back. <laughs> These are profound changes, uh, and the idea that you don't have to go to the courthouse and stand around. Um, at, at time, trouble, and expense, uh, just to have uh, routine matters uh, heard or decided um, is really gonna shake us. Uh, uh, we, now that we know how to do that, um, then we can begin to restructure dockets so that a lot of things can be done uh, electronically and remotely and will not require um, hearings uh, in person. One of the challenges is going to be what what needs to be in person and what doesn't. Um, uh, appellate courts across the country have been hearing um, oral argument uh, remotely on, uh, on Zoom or whatever platform. Um, and that works pretty well, but there there's a whole uh, I think lawyers have to learn a whole different way of presenting argument in those circumstances, where to stand, how to look, where to put your papers, um, that, that, that you don't have to think about when you walk into the courtroom because it's all right there. Um, but is that good for us? So we'll have to think about, well, but we don't want to lose the majesty of the law. We want it to be efficient and available and accessible, but we also want it to be respected and revered and loved. Um, so we have to figure out what, what that, what, what's that about. On trials, um, I've, uh, I've been reading, everybody can read in the media uh, commentaries that are going both ways. There was a jury selection fellow that wrote uh, a column this morning that says uh, virtual jury trials are here to stay. Um, 
And that will be a very different reality. Um, it has uh, constitutional implications uh, for uh, criminal cases, certainly, and maybe even for civil cases. Um, but uh, for example, uh, this is something that I wouldn't have thought of either. Uh, we, ha we have had a complete virtual trial in a misdemeanor, class C misdemeanor traffic offense uh, case. Took a little less than a day. Everybody was remote. Jurors were at home or wherever. The judge was remote. Everybody was remote. Took a little less than a day. Got a verdict. Everybody thought it was it worked well. Nobody complained about it. Everybody thought, oh yeah, this is the way to do it. Said, so, well, okay, but those are traffic cases. How big a deal is that? Well, Texas tried 3,000 traffic cases to a jury, uh, to a verdict uh, last year. Uh, about a third of all of our jury trials. So if we think, okay, we can do this and we can do it just as well this other way, um, then that's going to really ch change things. And the other thing you said uh, too, Ron, um, Legal Aid's been using technology for a long time. Uh, and particularly in a state as big as Texas, uh, when you get legal, legal aid uh, lawyers that are out in the country, um, it's very hard for them to get training and uh, 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 to sit around and talk with other legal aid lawyers if they don't uh, travel a long distance. But being able to do that remotely um, is going to be, uh, it's going to be a sea change. Um, I was just told this morning that our legal aid offices are putting out how-to videos and webinars. They're beefing up their websites. Uh, they're trying to get the word out uh, publicly. Here, you know, if you're facing these kinds of problems, here's what you can do and make it easy to do that. So you don't have to go cross town to a legal aid office. You just um, maybe text on your phone. Uh, and so all of those bring challenges with them, but um, uh, they're going to uh, uh, change the, the way the legal system works. Krish, can you, obviously uh, the innovations and the potentially uh, longer lasting innovations that uh, Chief Justices have talked about have, have lots of implications for practicing lawyers. And I know the ABA has not only been trying to help lawyers practice today in 2020 under new circumstances, but is also thinking about longer term innovations in the, the delivery of legal services, both to people uh, in poverty and to everybody. Can you talk about those uh, initiatives of the ABA, uh, thinking about longer term innovation, uh, you know, jumping off of our current circumstances? Well, I just got to start by saying how incredibly exciting it is to hear two fabulous Chief Justices talking about all of these opportunities that are in front of us. Um, I, had, I had the opportunity last week to participate a little bit in the opening of the court year in London. Um, and the Lord Chancellor who spoke talked about the fact that our collective challenge at, worldwide as bars and as court systems, he said is to figure out how to bring back something that is new and better than what we had before. And that's what we were just hearing um, from, from both of the wonderful chiefs here. And that really is the challenge. And the question is, 
how best to do that. Um, I am a big believer, uh, as is, I think, the, the ABA, in the notion that we're going to have to test and uh, measure some metrics around the changes that are coming in order to get answers to what works and what works best and what doesn't work so well. Um, for example, uh, the, the ABA has encouraged um, states to experiment with regulatory reforms designed to address um, closing the access to justice gap. The ABA has not yet taken a position with respect to any particular sort of variety of regulatory reform. And what you're seeing, um, particularly in the Western states, but certainly not limited to that, is um, a, a whole host of different approaches uh, to, for example, um, in Arizona, uh, we're gonna move to a, a, a rule um, that permits non-lawyers to have an ownership interest in law firms. Um, that curls some people's toes. Um, but others argue that it is a necessity if we are going to ever move to a place where we can um, continue to address uh, the access to justice gap. So we are convening next month a gathering um, of the players in the states that are experimenting with various regulatory reforms to talk with the academy about what can we measure in these states that are experimenting and um, what must we measure so that if state A does one thing and state B does something else, we have measured the same metrics in both of those states in order to actually be able to answer the question of what works and what doesn't. Uh, because as far as I can tell at this point, every single state is doing something slightly different from what anyone else is doing. Um, so I'm excited about the ABA playing a role on behalf of the profession um, to help answer some of these questions. The other innovation that I think is really important for us to look at with great care as a profession is the bar exam which um, may be not directly focused on the delivery of legal services to our underserved communities, but we have a natural experiment happening literally in front of our eyes on a national basis because the approaches that our states have taken to the bar exam runs the gamut from granting diploma privileges to uh, a modified one-day bar exam to nope, we're sticking with the traditional sort of two-day in-person bar exam. We need to measure the results of that because this is an opportunity to answer once and for all the question of whether the bar exam protects the public and if so, how much. Um, so as we, as we go forward with all these innovations, we gotta be careful to make sure we're measuring the metrics as well. I share, as, as president of the Legal Services Corporation, I share your excitement. Uh, Chief Justice um, uh, McCormick uh, referenced the 80% of the uh, civil needs in, in, uh, of low-income people in Michigan go uh, unmet, or, uh, and that 
there's a similar statistic that you would see nationwide. 86% of the civil legal needs of low-income Americans were either totally unassisted or uh, received inadequate assistance. And while we clearly need more resources, more legal aid lawyers, more pro bono lawyers to address that, to make up a justice gap, that enormous, 86%, uh, we're not going to we're not going to make it up uh, purely through additional resources. We need to rethink about how our justice system operates, and uh, uh, you know whether we ask for it or not. This is the uh, time and the opportunity to to do that. Uh, Chief Justice McCormick, um, court employees and judges are in a sense first responders, at least for those individuals who experience mental health, addiction domestic violence issues, um, and, and during the pandemic, uh, you, you know, the, at least the trial courts uh, uh, have continued to see lots of those folks. Talk about how the courts are dealing with those sorts of crisis situations at a time when state court budgets are, are challenged because of the economic crisis. Um, yeah, this is going to be an ongoing um, topic that we're going to all have to be talking about because in addition to the public health uh, problems, we know that um, mental health, addiction, domestic violence um, are, are increasing problems in our communities in trying to get through this particular public health crisis. But Courts were already first responders to um, many of those issues, right? I mean, you know, uh, a, a lot of people with mental health crises, addiction uh, issues, and domestic violence issues land in court. Um, and we know now from 30 years of problem-solving court data that there are approaches that um, courts can use that can heal people. Um, you know, we have lots of data now uh, from problem-solving courts uh, doing the work they do for the last three decades. You know, when, when, when the first problem-solving judges uh, started those programs, we didn't have that, we do now. Um, but they're, they're time-intensive, resource-intensive, and um, require collaboration between um, courts and other, uh, other agencies, um, other uh, partners. Um, but I, I think we're, we're just going to have to double down on all of that. Um, it, you know, it is what it is. Um, co it, co courts are not really upstream for all of those problems. We're pretty downstream. By the time somebody with a mental health crisis ends up in court, a lot of um, systems have failed uh, already, right? Same with a substance abuse crisis. By the time somebody with a substance abuse crisis ends up in court, a lot of systems have failed upstream. Um, but here we are, and now we're in a position where um, we have both carrots and sticks um, to be able to serve a role uh, to heal. Um, and given what we know about how successful courts that um, are able to engage uh, restorative processes are, I think it's a winning strategy to sell the other branches of government in funding those programs um, and sell our community partners in um, assisting in them. I don't, there's no complex societal problem that can be solved without surrounding it, which means, you know, getting every stakeholder in the room and around the table and 
um, and mental health and substance abuse and domestic violence are complex problems that need to be surrounded. Um, and I think courts are in a unique position to do it. Because by the time somebody um, lands in court as a result of one of those problems, um, we have some carrots and sticks and it, it will require funding. I will tell you in a terrible budget year right now, um, our budget did take uh, a, 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 a cut um, in the fiscal year 21. Um, but the one thing that we got more funding for was problem solving courts. So we will be increasing our problem solving courts in Michigan um, in the coming year. Um, and I, you know, it's a, it's a winning, I have a winning sales pitch on that every time I go to the legislature. That's interesting. At a time of budget cuts, uh, the areas that are getting increases are usually telling. Uh, Chief Justice Heck, you serve not only uh, as the Chief Justice in Texas, but also as the President of the Conference of Chief Justices. How, how are the, your colleagues around the country, the other uh, state Supreme Court justices and administrators, uh, collaborating or sharing best practices at, at this point? The Conference of Chief Justices is a little over 50 years old. Uh, and it's supported by the National Center for State Courts, um, which is coming up on 50 years old. Uh, and it really is the way and a very effective way for uh, state courts in the various different states, which are ordinarily siloed. They, you know, we, we do things differently from Michigan, and we're proud of that. Uh, and... Uh, it's a way to break that down some and begin to share um, things that work, problems that we've got that, that have come up. Uh, and that's what we've done with the pandemic. When it, when it first hit, um, our Conference of Chief Justices uh, formed a rapid response team. Uh, we meet every uh, Thursday uh, midday and talk about what's been going on in the week. Um, at the very beginning, we were meeting two or three times a week. Um, we formed groups that would look at particular kinds of problems. Um, and um, one of them focuses on technology and Chief Justice McCormick's uh, the chair of that group. Um, and the, the, the commission was to go through and see what problems people are having, what uh, almost all the courts uh, had emergency orders uh, that if they could uh, first crack out of the box. We gathered all those up. You can go on the website, you can see them all. Uh, we, uh, when we come up with a um, uh, problem or an approach like evictions, uh, there's a big uh, whole corner of the website that's devoted to that. Um, so we encourage all of our members, the, the members of the uh, CCJ are, are close personally anyway. Uh, there's only 58 of us. Uh, and uh, so we're accustomed to visiting with each other. Uh, we come from very different backgrounds um, in, the, in our states, uh, but uh, there is a lot of uh, communication. Uh, and you know, I'll just give you one example. Um, we're talking about uh, uh, the budget crises and how things uh, are, are going to get tight for us. But you know, several years ago, um, uh, uh, some of us thought that 
we needed to do an economic study in the state to show that legal aid actually helps the money that you spent is, is an investment. The return is greater than the money that you invest. It really does help society uh, to spend that money. Uh, you're saved more in the long run. Um, and, uh, you know, the first one or two states that did that, people were, I don't know if this is going to work or not. But now about half the states have done it. And uh, so that's the kind of thing that uh, the chiefs talk about. We talk about uh, problem solving courts, um, the various different uh, uh, ways of using remote technology. I think the first remote technology webinar that CCJ sponsored had like 5,000 people on it because uh, everybody wanted to know what button do you push? How do you do this? Uh, and they didn't want to, you know, it wasn't philosophical. It was just, where do I click? Uh, how do you keep marauders out of the meeting? Uh, those kinds of things. So um, CCJ exercises a lot of leadership with the help of um, the National Center. And also uh, there's another group, uh, Conference of State Court Administrators, that's the, high, uh, the highest ranking court administrator in each state. Uh, and they're an enormously valuable resource because um, uh, they're they're down there where the rubber meets the road. They're trying to make it work. Um, so I, I feel like we've had a very good coordinated, uh, valuable response. Well, as we wrap up, I'd like to ask each of you what your takeaway is uh, from the pandemic so far. Unfortunately, we, <laughs> we'd like to think we're toward the end, but uh, it, it looks like we're gonna be at this uh, longer. So I'd like to ask each of you, what you think is the most important lessons that you and your organizations have learned in responding to COVID-19? Uh, Trish, why don't we start with you? So the American Bar Association has learned that this virtual environment allows us to reach vastly more lawyers than we were able to um, in a get on an airplane and go to a meeting kind of a world. Uh, and that for us is very exciting. We have more lawyers attending our CLEs and our webinars and participating in our work than ever before. And we're going to um, continue to take advantage of this opportunity to allow people to be active and, and be bar leaders without leaving their dining room. Chief Justice McCormick, what's your, what are your takeaways uh, uh, from, from the pandemic and, and what you've seen and, and your courts and other people's responses to it? I mean, there's so many, but um, uh, mostly I've been proud of, uh, of the bench and the bar in Michigan for being so resilient. I mean, I, you know, I don't know that I could have predicted how um, the judges and the lawyers of this state could have and would have responded so um, uh, incredibly well to this new normal uh, and to being able to continue to make sure our courthouses are places where people can continue to access justice. And then the biggest lesson of all, which I think I've already made clear, is that we can be entrepreneurs. I mean, we don't have to, you know, we, that, that's a really important lesson for lawyers. You know, we, we've been taught from the beginning of law school and throughout our career that we're not allowed to think like entrepreneurs. In fact, we're supposed to be the bummer in the entrepreneur's conference room. And all of a sudden, um, we don't have to be that anymore. We can be, we can be like entrepreneurs and it's going to help 
us do better by the public um, in the next 100 years of this profession. So that's a great lesson for all of us. Chief Justice Act, what's your takeaway? Yeah, I really can't say it better than that. I, I just totally agree with that, that uh, we've just, um, our justice system, the civil justice system is a product of the federal rules of civil procedure. Um, uh, 70, 80 years ago. Um, the criminal justice system is in many respects a product of the 19th century. And uh, this is really requiring us um, to take a different view of things. Um, we've, uh, you know, with legal services, uh, access to justice, our principal response has been to raise money. But now uh, we begin to look at it and say, you know, maybe we don't need uh, all of these problems that people are running up against. Maybe there are ways of simplifying things. So that that uh, very realistic idea and then collaboration, the idea that you're going to have to work with together with uh, a lot of other people and find way, find solutions um, is, uh, I think, going to change us going forward. Trish Rifo, Chief Justice McCormick, Chief Justice Heck, this has been terrific. Thank you for being with us today. And much more importantly, thank you for your leadership uh, before the pandemic, uh, to the extent any of us can remember that period. But uh, certainly, as we've heard today, your leadership during this time period, uh, really a potentially transformative time period is uh, uh, both important and inspiring. So thank you for that. Stay well and good night. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on the podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.